should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Dion, thank you so much for join, joining me here on the program. You're welcome. Uh, I have done a little bit of reading in terms of finding out more about you. And I was telling you before the interview, the intent of bringing you here on the show and bringing Roma, your partner, and Ken Jones is to really get to know you before When We Rise, the miniseries actually airs in February. Let's make sure we know the facts before we actually see the miniseries. So, Thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you played a tremendous role during the HIV AIDS epidemic here in San Francisco, being a part of Ward 86 uh, at the San Francisco General Hospital. And Ward 86 was the first HIV AIDS outpatient clinic. Um, you know, kind of walk us through, maybe, if you're okay mm -hmm. with it, just where you were at emotionally and mentally at that time and how did you find yourself involved in this process or was it even a question mm -hmm. it was already there it was an innate in you that there, it was a calling that you had to do this well um the the official beginning of what we came to know as the hiv epidemic was um uh, 1981, which is when the CDC first started recognizing what we later took us took a minute to recognize what was going on, and um, and so in 1981, I was um, living here in San Francisco. I was in nursing school at um, City College. Uh, I had uh, a few years earlier come back from spending um, several years in the Peace Corps and. Togo, West Africa, where I met uh, Roma, and um, and I had a uh, a two-year-old daughter in 1981, and I was out as a lesbian. I was ident I, my identity was as a political activist, and um, and I was uh, living in um, our home that we still live in in the in the mission, just a few blocks from San Francisco General. My goal in going to nursing school was to be able to go work at San Francisco General. I wanted to work at the city's public hospital. And, and I did in 1982 when I graduated. And I uh, wanted to go to nursing school to become a midwife. And it, at the time, you had to spend a couple of years on the general adult medical surgical wards before you could go into a specialty like labor and delivery. So I got assigned to the general adult medical ward at San Francisco General, which is called 5C, uh, inpatient unit. 
And it turned out that that was the ward where most of the people uh, with AIDS were, um, were being hospitalized. About, I'd say, close to a half of the 34-bed unit were people living, people dying. I mean, they were quite ill um, of, um, of AIDS. At the time, we didn't know yet about HIV. And, and so gradually, um, over that first year, I, I learned about what it was like to be an AIDS nurse and, um, and was drawn to what was predominantly gay men um, who I, I identified with as a lesbian because in addition to kind of the incredible devastation of what this illness was, they were experiencing a phenomenal amount of homophobia at uh, so many different levels, and that was something that was very recognizable to me. Um, I didn't feel confident as a new nurse. I didn't know a whole lot. I was really afraid about you know, doing harm to my patients, but I did know something about homophobia, and there was something there that I could do and ensure that at least during the eight hours that I was taking care of these patients, they would be safe and they would be protected. Um, and so in 1983, um, the Department of Public Health, the mayor, the director of the hospital, it really was a, a pretty high level decision, was made to start to create HIV specialty units. Um, and uh, first, Ward 86, the clinic uh, opened in January of 1983, and the first inpatient unit uh, opened in July, and I was recruited by the nurse um, who was uh, the, to be the nurse manager of this new inpatient HIV unit, wonderful um, gay man by the name of Cliff Morrison, who assembled what he wanted his team to be, and he asked me to, um, to be part of it. And initially, I said no, because I was interested in becoming a midwife. <laughs> But he kept asking, and, uh, and I finally asked him, would I be willing to work part-time because I was involved in a lot of political work at, through the women's building, and, and I had been trying to, to, to drop down and work 80% time so I would have time for political work and raising mm -hmm. my daughter, and he said yes. And so that's really, in the end, why I made the decision mm -hmm. to to go work on this unit, and then this ended up being kind of my lifelong professional work, and I never became a midwife. <laughs> and it also became history, and it also yeah. became a part of history. Yeah. You know, this is during a time in which people, mm -hmm. and that includes, uh, you know, staff workers in the hospitals, mm -hmm. and that includes politicians who really fell for the stigma of HIV AIDS patients and, and really afraid of HIV mm -hmm. AIDS patients that they themselves would contract this and their mm -hmm. ignorance played into their fear. Mm -hmm. My guess is that, that you know, your biggest fear wasn't the same as some of what we, what we know of, what mm -hmm. we have read in the papers. Mm -hmm. I mean, what were your fears? Was it you know, being LGBTQ and seeing you know, your gay brothers impacted by the disease itself? Mm -hmm. What do you think? Well, I, I think you have to remember back then, um, so no, this is 1983, we now call this disease AIDS, but we mm -hmm. still don't know what's causing it. 
the HIV virus was not discovered for another year and a half. And, um, and so there were um, best guesses and speculations about what was causing this and how transmission was occurring. And it seemed to be roughly similar to what we knew about hepatitis B. So it was a sexually transmitted uh, illness. It was probably a virus, and it would also be, could be transmitted through blood. And so people receiving blood transfusions, healthcare workers getting needle sticks, um, women, pregnant women passing, uh, passing it on to their, their newborns, all of those things we guessed at, but we didn't really know for sure. So I think it's important to sort of imagine that um, being in that kind of a situation, and um, because there there were very real fears and concerns, and nobody could say really for sure mm -hmm. whether or not casual contact, um, airborne, all of those mm -hmm. things that that raises a considerable amount of of concerns, and then just generally in healthcare, we didn't really have what we now have as standards about universal precautions, this thing of universal precautions that really came, came out of, grew out of, of the knowledge and the lessons of the HIV epidemic. So I, I don't, I mean, I think, that, I think for some of us who were choosing to do this work, there was a fair amount of denial about mm -hmm because there was so much um, fear and, and stigma that was all tied together, it was very hard to t tease out what is rational fear and what is irrational fear in the, with so many unknown factors. And so for those of us that were choosing to sort of step forward and do the work, there was, I think, a certain amount of denial mm. um, that uh, that really lasted until, and you know, many of us had numerous needle sticks and exposures, any one of which could have resulted in an HIV infection. And it was, and we were hearing of occupational exposures happening across the country, but it wasn't until 18, 1987 when one of our colleagues, a young nurse who had moved from New York to come and do this work, had a needle stick, just like you know, I had had 10 or 15 in, in my career mm -hmm. and had a needle stick and six weeks later, seroconverted mm -hmm. and became HIV positive that I think that the pendulum uh, kind of rectified and we then really had to come to an understanding of these are real concerns and we have enough knowledge now to know how to protect healthcare workers. And so mm -hmm. then the issue is how to get the institution mm -hmm. to provide the support. And, you know, fortunately, we worked at San Francisco General and the Department of Public Health in San Francisco was really trying to be at the foreground of every new bit of knowledge. How do you translate that into rational mm -hmm. work practices to deliver the best care possible, given the knowledge, and in the safest way possible for the healthcare workers? When you talk to activists like Cleve Jones, and, you know, who's written a memoir, who his own story has mm -hmm. already been told through a Hollywood film, mm -hmm. Milk, mm -hmm. featuring Sean Penn, um, you know, he doesn't forget the lesbians who 
who organized and mobilized mm -hmm. to really help the gay community and those uh, infected by HIV. And in fact, he will tear up every single time mm -hmm. as if it was yesterday. I think that we have heard from those activists who really felt the compassion from the lesbian community. I'd love to hear from you as being a lesbian mm -hmm. during that time in which some articles will say, lesbians really did help shape and revolutionize the healthcare industry in terms of the, the, the care practices mm -hmm. for the gay patients who were infected with HIV. Right. Well, I, I, th I think it's a, it's a little bit of a complicated issue. I mean, <laughs> and, um, because there's a number, I think there were a number of forces that were going on at the time. You had a very dynamic women's movement that was happening that a lot of lesbians were like myself and like Roma were participating in. And in San Francisco, institutions like the women's building, the battered women's movement, the anti-rape uh, movement, et cetera. There were many lesbians who were participating in the, what we call the broader women's movement. And then you also had a lesbian gay rights movement. At the time, the transgender question was still not understood and not incorporated in that understanding of broader civil rights. Um, but the lesbian gay rights movement was predominantly dominated by men. And it was not easy for uh, lesbians to, be, to play a role uh, in that movement. When gay men started to become ill and dying in such incredibly high numbers it's, and in such a dramatic fashion, um, you there were many lesbians who active in the women's movement, trying to be active in the lesbian gay movement that were there to really um, uh, step up and be able to, um, to, to do the work. And, um, and do the organizing and the advocacy and the movement building that was required. The other thing though is then when you're looking at the healthcare profession, the nursing profession is dominated by women. There are more men now in the nursing profession, but back then it was almost exclusively women. And so, you know, you have a hospital like San Francisco General and uh, initially predominantly men who are coming in uh, with AIDS um, and their caregivers are gonna be predominantly women. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, doctors and nurses, but the nurses are predominantly gonna be women. And I think that for those of us, uh, of the original 12 nurses that were hired to create this inpatient HIV unit, uh, Ward 5B, uh, six of the 12 were gay men or lesbians. Um, and, um, and many of us really were, uh, were drawn to doing this work because in part because of the leadership of who it was who was responsible for creating this ward, we were gonna try to create a really um, positive environment for our patients and for our staff to be who they truly are and really learn what that means and how the healthcare environment needs to be transformed to allow that to happen. For mm -hmm. people to be able to be out, to not mm -hmm. have to hide um, their relationships, to not have to, um, and to, 
to be able to negotiate their relationship with their families of origin, which were oftentimes very dramatic mm-hmm. at what, you know, was were people's deathbeds, the meeting of um, the patient's life, their lovers, their friends, and their family of origin. Um, and so it, it really, um, it created a very special environment. Hi, I'm Chuck Spence. I'm the owner of the Maui Sunseeker LGBT Resort, and I'm also vice president of Maui Pride. It's not just the only LGBT resort in Maui, it's the only LGBT resort in all of Hawaii, which is really kind of amazing. Maui Sunseeker actually started years and years before I even got involved. I came along as one of the owners a little bit later in in life. I came to Maui back in 1978 and absolutely loved the island. I fell in love and I thought, this is where I want to live, this is where I want to be. And so from 1978 until 2008, I finally came alive with the dream and bought the Maui Sunseeker because I realized that this would be the next step in my life and um, thought that this would be an ideal situation because I could do something that that was my own business rather than making money for other people. It's important to have a place where you know you can feel comfortable about yourself, you can feel loved, and you can feel welcomed by everybody. And I think that that's the ambiance that we try to create. And and that's the message that, that we try to deliver in all of our ads and trying to bring people to Maui is that you know we're not just an experience on Maui, an experience of Maui. When you think back years ago, how closeted we used to be, and you think about how suppressed we were back then to how open and accepting we are now, and, and it's, it's a good progression for society. It's good that people are, are not just you know, tolerating, but appreciating diversity. And that's the message, is that we really need to make sure that, that people appreciate diversity. I think that whoever you are, Follow your passion. Follow what you believe in. Follow whether it leads you down the path of art or whether it leads you down a path of business or you know some other aspect of internet creativity. Um, follow that and, and just be passionate about what you do. Spotlight on success and achievement is brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. I'm Heclina. I've been doing drag here in San Francisco for almost 20 years and uh, over the past couple months I just opened up my club Oasis. It's been going really well. People really seem to appreciate the space. It's something people say San Francisco really needs right now because the city has been changing a lot. I always had this attitude of, of opening a space that was kind of like for everybody and that's just kind of the attitude and the, the uh, the ethics of Oasis is it's kind of a space for everybody. How does it feel to be a business owner? I don't know, you know, it's funny because I still need, I still have to kind of pinch myself to believe it's actually true, you know what I mean? Like I walk in there and and I go up to the bar and I go, oh, can I please have a glass of water? You know, it's kind of like, I forget that it's my place. Running gay clubs, it's changed a lot. Um, I think that gay people now, they're everywhere. They don't feel like they have to maybe be 
in a gay bar all the time, so you have to be much more creative about how you are enticing people to come out to your club. I, I guess I'm successful because I'll just say it, I work really hard at what I do. I also like to provide a really quality experience for people. So yes, you know, people will pay to see my shows and pay to come to my club, but I always like, like to give them something that's worth it. The experience that they'll, they'll leave my shows going, okay, that was worth it, you know what I mean? This has always been my attitude, um, just to entertain people. And so it seems like that works, you know. I would say to young kids, you know, just kind of form your own identity. And, uh, and you know, don't let others dictate how you should behave or think. Uh, you can always go to uh, sfoasis.com to find out about all the entertainment and nightlife that we have going on at Oasis. If you want to see drag, we've got that for you. If you want to see some queer hip-hop parties or queer dance parties, we have that for you. Spotlight on success and achievement. Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Um, that I think really helped to advance generally within healthcare, mm -hmm. what has now grown into, you know, a, a strong movement around lesbian, gay, transgender, bisexual health. Mm -hmm. <laughs> about what does that mean? And both for for the community patients, but also for healthcare workers. Thank as well. you for that. Thank you for that. I've got two more questions for you mm -hmm. before I let you go. I have to ask you, and since you brought it up in terms of you know, where we're at with our movement, mm -hmm. uh, in an article that I read, I mean, you were very focused on the fact that we do have the tools to get to Ground Zero, mm -hmm. which Ground Zero is an initiative of San Francisco to reduce HIV infections by 90% mm -hmm. uh, and by 2020, I think, which is incredible. Mm -hmm. uh, but we still have the, we still have the facts that remain in terms of new HIV infections that are impacting the most marginalized mm -hmm. of our communities, and that would be people of color, the transgender community, mm -hmm. and although we have the tools, it still sounds like the access part, mm -hmm. you know, not everyone has access to these tools. Right. Right? Is that Correct. a political problem, or is that a community problem, or...? Well, it's both. Yeah, it's a personal problem for the people who are infected as well. And mm -hmm. but it's also, I think, if you take a historical perspective, this has been the path of every epidemic that comes through a community where everybody's impacted, and then gradually, people who are well off, you know, think of the plague, of the influenza epidemic, of various cholera epidemics. They do these epidemics end up getting concentrated and impacting people who are poor, much more so than people who are not poor, and eventually over time. And I think this is where we're at. So the huge advances that we've made right now that I think not everybody in the public really understands about HIV is that the range of, of treatments that we have are much better tolerated than they used to be, with few, fewer side effects. And people who, with HIV infection who get on these medications, who have access to them, get on them, can stay on them, their viral load is undetectable. They do not transmit the virus, whether or not they are using condoms or other uh, methods of prevention. And so, so that's one way we can stop 
transmission. We can decrease deaths because people are on treatment and they don't, they don't die from HIV, advanced HIV disease, the way they did in the past. And then the last piece in the prevention arsenal is we now have a treatment to prevent HIV in this drug called Truvada, or pre-exposure mm -hmm. prophylaxis, that is a way for people when they are in a period in their life where they could be potentially at risk for HIV transmission. So they're new to the city, they just broke up, they're getting back into the dating scene. Not any different than how heterosexual women have to think about birth control. Mm -hmm. <laughs> when do they need to be, when do they use protection in order to mm -hmm. uh, prevent an unwanted pregnancy? We now have this means available. And that's why theoretically we can say, yeah, we can set a goal for getting to zero. Question is, how do we provide access? So the same issues that affect access to birth control for poor women of color are affecting access to pre-exposure prophylaxis for young, right. gay, transgender people of color mm -hmm. um, and poor people mm -hmm. and all over the world. And so I think there's some unique, there's, these are critical moments. Um, there have been critical moments all through this. We've always tried to figure out in San Francisco at any given time with our knowledge, what is the best treatment. Mm -hmm. But then the second question is, how do we make sure that everybody gets it and gets access to it? Dion, it's really hard to believe that uh, you're retired. <laughs> but we're very thankful yeah. for all that you've done. And um, I'm sure of it, the work continues in various different ways, such as this project, mm -hmm. When We Rise. My last question for you is, um, you know, by the time this miniseries airs, it will reach just about everyone who, who watches ABC, and I think ABC covers a lot of people, you know, outside of the LGBTQI world. And like you said, we're not sure, you know, what's going to be accurate, what's not going mm -hmm. to be accurate. But in your own words, or from you, mm -hmm. yourself, what would you like for the people who didn't, who did not live through the time that you did, or even the young lesbians who mm -hmm. didn't know that there were a lot of lesbian caretakers and nurses mm -hmm. and women who cared for those impacted by the HIV uh, AIDS epidemic during that time. What would you like for them to take away from someone else telling your story? Well, I think what, what made our family agree to participate in this project um, is sort of twofold. One is um, that uh, uh, Dustin Lance Black, the writer, the, um, and really whose, whose brainchild this was, really wanted to tell a movement about, a, a story about movement building. And as political activists, we think it's really important that, that, that we tell these kinds of stories, that there's not enough of these kinds of stories that are told, that we're used to narratives about heroes and villains. And we oftentimes don't understand that really what brings about change, dramatic changes, is movements of a lot of people working together, coming together and making the decision to step forward. And I think that um, we have examples of incredibly courageous people doing this at this very moment around a broad range of issues um, across the country and across the world. And um, 
And so this is a movement-building story, just like other movements that, that um, bring together ordinary people who make the decision that they're going to um, do something <laughs> and participate to make the world a better place. I think the second piece of the story is that um, because of the particularities around um, about homophobia and what it means to um, gay men, lesbians, transgender, bisexual, queer, and everything in between, um, there's a lot of isolation that people go through. And I think to be able to sort of see these imperfect characters, and Lord only knows we were most imperfect, <laughs> try to find our way um, as human beings, and that in many ways we're all trying to find the same thing, which is a sense of belonging, a sense of community, a sense of family, love, maybe with children, without children, who knew it would also include grandchildren, <laughs> is um, I think can be, um, uh, can be a useful narrative to hear because they don't, we don't get to see, certainly when I was growing up, I didn't get to see a lot of stories like that. Right. And so um, I think sort of a way of humanizing this and being able to recognize that in a lot of ways we're not all that different. Right. And we're very different from each other. We're not monolithic. This is a very uh, diverse movement, a diverse community, and um, with some sort of shared goals, and that is to, to have meaningful lives and to, to be happy and to make a contribution to our community. Well, I thank you so much for agreeing or not agreeing and being forced into <laughs> this project it means so much to me to keep your history thank alive you. so thank you thank you the spotlight on success and achievement goes to lgbtqi members of the bay area who have demonstrated an incredible amount of success we're very proud to announce that this month's Spotlight on Success and Achievement is Rick Welts. Well, it's been an unbelievable stretch of time, obviously. Uh, everything the Warriors have gone through this season, really a magical season that ended in a championship. Uh, and now to, to top it off a week later with the opportunity to participate in the Pride Parade in San Francisco, it's, uh, it's a pretty wonderful time. You know, it's been a journey, right? We're all on our own personal journeys, and uh, the last four years has been a remarkable part of my life, but it, it's definitely a part of my life. Uh, you know, the decisions I made four years ago to come out in the way that I did, obviously, you know, I had decided I was signing up for something going forward and being part of the discussion, uh, and, you know, I welcome that. And this is, uh, you know, for me, a real honor to, to be participating in this way, and. I guess in, in some ways it, it will be a demonstration of how far professional sports has come in, in a very short period of time, uh, not as far as our society has come, so I think we have a lot to celebrate. Wow, I, I don't think I have any secrets. I don't think I'm that mysterious. You know, I've got a uh, pretty simple life. I like pretty simple things. Uh, you know, I've, I've got a great partner. His name's Todd Gage. Uh, he has two wonderful children, a 14-year-old girl and a 10-year-old boy. I, I uh, got off the parade route, got into a car with them, we drove to Lake Tahoe, and I got to watch 14-year-old girls play four 
soccer games over the course of the weekend and then drive back to the Bay Area. So that's my idea of an exciting weekend, you know, spending it with the kids and my partner and getting to do, you know, the most basic things that any family would get to do. Spotlight on success and achievement presented by Wells Fargo. Together we'll go far. Hi, my name is Courtney Ziegler, and I'm the founder of TransHack, which is an organization focused on creating technology for the trans community and visibility for trans technologists and entrepreneurs. Tech is like a new industrial revolution. There's so many opportunities for wealth building and wealth creation. It's perfect for the trans community, which experiences strong amounts of unemployment um, and low wages. TransHack um, provides an opportunity for trans individuals to take advantage of the wealth creation that the tech industry provides. Um, it's a space in which people who are in charge of innovation and development, all these awesome things that we are able to use through technology, are paid really well for that. And so I think that trans people should definitely have their hand in, in that space and creating that. And so TransHack provides that opportunity. I got my first computer when I was 15 years old in the 90s and it changed my world ever since then. And I went on to become an independent filmmaker who had to uh, not only write direct my own films, but also was kind of doing the technical stuff behind it, which is the editing and the capturing and all those things. I've always had this kind of tech-based background. I'm just very curious about a lot of things and just very fascinated about things that I don't know um, and things that can make me a better person. All of that motivates me. I'm just like, what else can I know? What else can I do? What else can I learn? Success to me means a number of things. I think right now in my life personally, it means waking up every day and feeling proud of the work that I'm doing and proud of myself. Just know what you want to get out of any particular industry. Um, it's not an industry that's 100% inclusive in the ways that it should be, in the ways that it's progressing towards. Of all types of people, in, in terms of creating the tech and the industry itself, building its infrastructure. Um, but that's also exciting in the fact that, like, um, people like me have a lot of room to change a lot of things and a lot of precedent to set, so, um, and that is the, the epitome of success. Spotlight on success and achievement is brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Let's get started. Go. All right. <laughs> on with this show. Roma, what an honor to have you with me here tonight. Thank you so much for joining the show. Thank you for the invitation. You're uh, leading the way here. Well, it's such a treasure that we still have activists such as yourself who are still here. And I don't mean, you know, still here and alive with us, although that's great, but, <laughs> but here as in San Francisco and available uh -huh. and that we have access to to ask these really important questions and reflecting back in our history. So your story is being retold through uh, ABC's new miniseries, When We Rise, written by Destin Lance Black and will be featured in 2017, I think early yeah. 2017, right? Yeah, and, January, uh, February. Yeah, it's it's based off of Cleve Jones's memoir, as I understand it, and there's a, a chapter in there or so that includes your story. Or is that not right? I have no idea. 
<laughs> I know, obviously, Cleve, Ken Jones, and myself are the stories that have inspired the TV series. That's what I would say. Um, so, but I haven't seen any chapters from Cleve's book, mm -hmm. but I know he's doing it because, you know, we know each other quite well. Yeah. So, but I haven't read it. You know, I think it's, it's going to be out in November. So it seems like the, you know, this, this miniseries, eight hours long or so, yeah. um, covers a specific period in LGBTQ history. So we're really looking at early to mid-70s? So from 69 to the Supreme Court decisions on that we have rights to marry. Mm. And, and then the final, final episode, part of the last episode, the eighth hour, <laughs> you know, we'll probably, I don't want to say what it's going to be, but it'll be a little bit beyond marriage and, you know, inviting the rest of the viewers to participate in the next mm -hmm. phase of where we're going. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in the late 60s, early 70s, all through the 70s, mm -hmm. that was a heavy, you know, decade or period for women's rights. It makes sense that you're a part of this project, and uh, you know anyone who knows you knows how much work you've done within you know women's rights, but not just women's rights, uh, lesbians and our rights. Um, in terms of your contribution to the LGBTQ movement, what would you say would be the heaviest or the biggest contribution? Would that be the liberation of women and lesbians, or yeah, I mean. I guess for me, well, no one's ever asked me the question this way, but I would say that I come from a liberation perspective and, you know, women at this point are, we're saying we're at least 50%, you know, maybe that'll change now with all the gender bending and everything, which I'm happy about. Um, but, you know, so we're everywhere and every issue is our issue, wherever you go. So for me, that's my core. So if the gender issue is facing uh, a, a gay issue, like when we were fighting for Prop 6 or anything like that, then, you know, I'm going to be there, mm -hmm. period. So if Harvey Milk's talking about housing, I'm going to be there, which is what he did. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think people forget that. Or aging, which I now am going through <laughs> the older part of my life. So... You know, I think Harvey reflected that, Cleve, Ken, the rest of us, and we were selected for those reasons. And I'm a part of that because I was woman identified, I am woman identified. Then I brought the, especially the grassroots perspective um, to the women's movement. And like, I think the women's building reflects that we were open to the social movements because we're everywhere, so mm -hmm. you can't just narrow it, mm -hmm. including when we moved into the electoral arena. It's interesting, you know. Does here, that make sense? It, it does. It does. In uh, you know this in twenty sixteen, when we think about women's rights, I think we're there's we're still struggling absolutely with what that means in terms of equality. Mm -hmm. Although we've made a lot of progress, haven't we? Mm. Well, yes. I mean, you know, I live the moment of my era, mm -hmm. right? So, I mean, especially I mean, coming from my perspective, when you look at 
what's happening to women who are poor, uh, the racialization of poverty and equality and equity, immigration, I, you know, incarceration levels, then we have so far to go because those issues are not the core because the core of, this is my perspective, of where the energy is now is to have the first president of the United States who's a woman. I don't denigrate that, but this woman, if, it's, if that's true, if Hillary Clinton's going to be elected, then she has to have the agenda that includes the inequity and the inequality, mm -hmm. you know, on voting rights and whose voting rights are being attacked. You know, just questions like that. So that's my core, and that's where I am. So, you know, I started with that identity, but that's right. not the, I mean, You've the evolved. core is not that. Right. Never has been, because we're everywhere. Right, right. From the day somebody says they're, you're, this person is born and it's a female, then there are liberation issues. Mm -hmm. So, hey, hello. <laughs> <laughs> I want to, you know, touch on that. I mean, when you were doing the heavy lifting, a lot of the yeah. core work that you were uh, doing, the lesbian community may not have been always included, even the equal rights uh, fight or the movement. We had priorities. I'm not sure if, if uh, women's rights were prioritized uh, at the top. For the well, there was all kinds of levels, right? There mm -hmm. were the radical lesbian separatists. There were the progressive, you know, so whichever part you identified with, there was going to be a struggle, right? So like on the ERA, for example, you know, I could be a pro-union person, but on the ERA, the unions were not totally in favor. It was a big struggle because they felt that if we were equal in that way, or a, a section of, a part of that movement, and this is not to denigrate the unions, but there's struggle everywhere. Mm -hmm. So, and, and so there was a big struggle about should we incorporate the ERA, because if we do, then the protection legislation that had already been unionized that would be challenged. It's sort of the same thing when we want to go for um, universal health care. Mm -hmm. You know, so there's some trade-offs that people are afraid of losing if there's a universality. Mm. And mm. that's at the core of every struggle. It sure. doesn't matter where you go. Sure. Sure. I guess where I'm going with that is, uh, you know, I, I kind of want to know, yeah, in terms of your perspective and looking back, what it was like to organize and to, to be a part of the movement, but to specifically be, you know, lesbian or female during that time as you're right. working with other right. gay men. So we're, so with other gay men. So basically... I'm Heclina. I've been doing drag here in San Francisco for almost 20 years, and uh, over the past couple of months, I just opened up my club, Oasis. It's been going really well. People really seem to appreciate the space. It's something people say San Francisco really needs right now, because the city has been changing a lot. I always had this attitude of, of opening a space that was kind of like for everybody, and that's just kind of the attitude and the, the, uh, 
the ethics of Oasis. This is kind of a space for everybody. How does it feel to be a business owner? I don't know, you know, it's funny because I still need, I still have to kind of pinch myself to believe it's actually true, you know what I mean? Like I walk in there and, and I go up to the bar and I go, oh, could I please have a glass of water? You know, it's kind of like, I forget that it's my place. Running gay clubs, it's changed a lot. Um, I think that gay people now, they're everywhere. They don't feel like they have to maybe be in a gay bar all the time, so you have to be much more creative about how you are enticing people to come out to your club. I, I guess I'm successful because I'll just say it, I work really hard at what I do. I also like to provide a really quality experience for people. So yes, you know, people will pay to see my shows and pay to come to my club, but I always like, like to give them something that's worth it. The experience that they'll, they'll leave my shows going, okay, that was worth it, you know what I mean? This has always been my attitude. Um, just to entertain people and so it seems like that works, you know. I would say to young kids, you know, just kind of form your own identity and, uh, and you know, don't let others dictate how you should behave or think. Uh, you can always go to uh, sfoasis.com to find out about all the entertainment and nightlife that we have going on at Oasis. If you want to see drag, we've got that for you. If you want to see some queer hip-hop parties or queer dance parties, we have that for you. Spotlight on success and achievement. Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together we'll go far. Hi, I'm Marsha Levine and I'm the parade manager for San Francisco Pride. The thing about working for San Francisco Pride, or really any Pride, is that you're creating a space, a venue, an opportunity for somebody who lives someplace where they're not as free to be LGBT, to come out, be with others, like them, identify, and feel a sense of community as well as freedom. If pride can do that for just one person and make them feel a part of something instead of making them feel like they're alone, that's why I continue to work on Pride to this day. I think that San Francisco especially is a freelancer's dream. It's one of the best cities where you can come and you can work on contract for as little or as much as you want to. It's a, a big part of what I do to be able to afford to live in San Francisco. Saving's really important. San Francisco is not an inexpensive place to live. And when you have extraordinary circumstances cropped up, uh, like illness or other expenses, repairs and things like that, if you don't have the savings, that could really affect your ability to remain a viable member of San Francisco's Residents. Spotlight on success and achievement. Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together we'll go far. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. We were struggling to have our own organized identity, some form of a woman's movement. Like I said, there were different levels and different struggles within that movement. And then take, uh, identify with the part of the movement that would be open 
to gay struggles. Bisexuality was a big deal. Mm. But, you, you know, I mean, those right. were the days. Okay, we're past it a little bit, not always. <laughs> Even on bisexuality, we're doing gender bending and transgender, but there are people who are still identified as bisexual who feel they're not a part of it, right? right. So it just goes on, but it's at different levels. It's not a new idea to say bisexual. No. It's just a struggle. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so that's, and then when the gay movement was also emerging, you know, uh, then there was who was going to be open across that. And there were uh, women who were gay identified, didn't want to have anything to do with the women's movement. Mm -hmm. You know, so, you know, are you going to be the person who's opening to listen and then figure out where the nexus for struggle is? Mm -hmm. So again, just to go back to what I was involved with, when the mystery disease came about, which we now call, no, we call HIV and AIDS, um, when I was doing universal healthcare work, the mainstream of the gay movement wasn't that interested. But when that mystery disease hit, all of a sudden, I would go to meetings and they was a big interest. Mm -hmm. So you have to be open to how movements move. Yes. yes. And that, you know, and so for me, um, investing in the women's building was the culmination of saying the grassroots women's movement, which identifies progressive, mm -hmm. which is changing, but at that time what was progressive, um, is going to have a room of our own in our own community like Virginia Woolf said, if women want to have an identity and make a contribution, they have to have a room of their own in their own home, mm -hmm. okay? Not just communally, the living room and the kitchen, but a place. Right. And so we transformed that into community, and we had the women's building. And it is really the gay community that saw that the best. You know, I have str I had struggles, mm -hmm. um, but even the women who were in the electoral arena, Diane Feinstein, you know, that they're like, what? Why? Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. we're everywhere. We don't have to have. Or we are in the community. Not so. I took the position no, and and yeah. it's there. Right. And thank you so yeah. much for that. As new generations are able yeah, to so access. Yeah. So we were able to mobilize. Right. And have us sit and imagine what could be in that space. Mm -hmm. And then it just kept going. And it is really the gay slash lesbian movement of the day. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> that, I, that was open. I want to follow up on, you know, talking about um, you kind of your work in the women's rights movement and the gay, where we're at today as feminists. We're, we're still experiencing some challenge of inclusion and, and and that would mean, you know, there are feminists or self-identified feminists who are really uh, questioning, you know, the inclusion of transgender women Absolutely. In, in the fight. I would love to hear from you, <laughs> you know, coming from the beginning in which maybe at one point or time in your own work, you may have felt excluded from uh, the, the biological sex perspective of, you know, male-female separation. Why are we struggling so much with the acceptance of transgender women in our, okay, our so movement? Okay, so this is, you know, my 
reflection and analysis, we're struggling because we think in either or terms. And like racism is a social construction, my orientation is that female is a woman is a social construction. And we're struggling with that. So if you take my perspective, then people are going to be born along a continuum. And so you say a vagina or a penis is self-defining socially mm-hmm. on the abuse level, on the access level, on the contribution level. I say no. Now, we have to address that this has been going on for thousands of years, so it's going to be a struggle. So you have to see where are we now and what's the next step. So I can sit in places, whether it's a social service or a company, or now like I'm working with jail reform. And so we're separated, like homelessness. The women are separated from the men. So I would say when I started doing homelessness, I'm like, why is there a separation? Well, because men are more violent, you know, women and the children. I'm like, these men are isolated. Their healing has to do with social. You have to have social experiences to be a healed person or a social animal. So this is not good. Mm -hmm. But I'm not saying that it's not legit for women to be afraid of being beaten up (laughs) on the street when they're homeless. And I can tell you the statistics of, you know, within 24 hours, a woman on the street you know, has been assaulted mm-hmm. in some form or another. So it's not that that fact is incorrect, but the assumptions about the social construction, it's not a biological thing right. that creates our liberation. It's right. a social construction. And so if it's a social construction, we can change it. Thank there you for you that. Are. Thank you. Thank you so much for does that. Does that make sense? It does. It really I know. does. It's just it's, like, uh... yeah. Um, so I would, I mean, you know, we're running out of time and I, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I could listen to you all day long and learn from you. I think it's so important. Um, I think my last question really touches on, uh, I know you can't tell us everything about the When We Rise. Oh, yeah. I'll uh, tell you me. what I know, <laughs> but I'm not at the core of it anymore. Right. You know? Right. Um, <laughs> of the production. Yeah. But we are in an interesting time of yes. our movement. We, it, it, it feels like a lot of the progress happened overnight. You're still here, but yet you can reflect upon two or three decades worth yeah, of work. That's correct. Even your work in homelessness, we're still having a lot of issues around access to, you know, the basic care like housing. Yeah. And it impacts... The essentials. Yeah. It impacts women. It impacts LGBT. It impacts people of color. You know, what, what are your thoughts about our future? And, and I know that the as, miniseries as queer probably... People, you mean? Yeah. As okay. queer, as activists. As, as activists? Uh, as LGBTQ people. I mean, I think that... When we rise, it's interesting they chose the, yes. the theme, means that we still need to continue rising. We still have a lot of work to do. What are your thoughts? Well, the reason I wanted to do this, right, this is not my natural thing to get into TV, never mind commercial television, right? So I felt, as Lance Black did, that we should make the attempt to work with a commercial television station 
to reach as many people as possible, even though what would probably happen is there would be some changes in what, what my life experience would be, and it would be inspired by my life. But as a woman, lesbian, that um, I wanted others, including, I really was thrilled that Ken and Cleve and others, not only the three of us, but like Cecilia Chung, for example, who's a trans woman and a leader. You know, I'm thrilled about that. And I knew that they would get actors who would um, be able to convey the movement message. And that's what my heart and soul is into, whether some of the facts of my life are not exactly um, that. And so it would touch people in their home in places that our movement hasn't gone. Mm -hmm. But our movement has impacted. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's, and so for young people, I know that because I'm from the state of Maine, and I, when I go back, I hear it. There's a difference in what young people are feeling. They may not even know exactly what it means, but there's a discomfort. But there's no way to be inspired that much. I mean, there are books, and I just felt like this commercial effort no matter what they cut or whatever, would be a contribution. That's a risk. I get it. Could be trashed, but I don't think so. Mm. Um, and so, and I really respect Ken um, and Cleve and the, you know, the movie Milk made a contribution. I have my own critiques, but it was, it made a contribution. And I'm hoping that's what it is. And that's where I'm coming from on it. Yeah, I, I think and, so. And that, I hope so. Yeah. And even the controversy, I mean, it, uh, I mean, even the discussion post or the cri critics, I mean, I, I think it's great. And we will cross that road when we get there. Yeah. So just one last thing. Yeah. Can you come back once the, sure. the series airs yeah. just to give us some you yeah, know, feedback? Can... Absolutely. I'll All let right. you know. <laughs> but yes, of course. <laughs> Roma, thank you so much for being here with us. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you.